Good morning. Welcome to Rising. We have a spectacular show for you today. Brianna and I were both early today in the studio when we got here. Yes. That never happens. It never happens. We had to was, fight for the makeup chair. I was determined to beat you this morning, Robbie. <laughs> you pulled in a sneak move and, and you uh, you got in there first. All right, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, the Biden administration is taking hits from all sides over what critics say has been an outright negligent response to the environmental disaster in East Palestine, Ohio. Secretary of Trans Transportation Pete Buttigieg claimed on Twitter that he lacks the authority to implement regulatory measures aimed at preventing derailments like the one in East Palestine. However, according to reporting from our friends at The Lever, this is nothing more than a straw man excuse. Rail law and regulatory experts interviewed by The Lever agreed that Buttigieg's transportation department can and should allow for a reinstatement of regulations, including the replacement of old braking systems. Meanwhile, over on the right, personalities like Tucker Carlson and T Tulsi Gabbard, who was arguably uh, politically undefined, did not hold back on Fox News last night. You're completely incompetent, completely incompetent. There's never been a cabinet secretary this flamboyantly incompetent and this so obviously uncaring, almost to the point of evil, if we're being honest about it. It's no wonder that these people don't trust these, our leaders. These people are in positions of great power and leadership to do exactly what these people need them to do, to show up, to be there, to provide them with exactly what they need during this massive catastrophe. But guess what? They're not there and they're not paying attention to them because they don't care. They see themselves as masters. They see the rest of us as adversaries and subjects. Uh, they, you know, the American people are basically an afterthought. They're very happy to take our taxpayer dollars, very happy to spend them as they please, spend trillions on military adventures around the world, leaving people like those in Palestine, Ohio, those in Jackson, Mississippi, who don't have access to clean drinking water, leaving my fellow veterans to struggle and beg and plead for pennies. Hmm. Yeah, it's been a really interesting dynamic. Uh, watching some of the Tucker Carlson clips in particular, you know, I, I was joking to you before we started filming today, it feels like the end of libertarianism. Because hmm. they're all kind of begging and clamoring, why hasn't the government done more? Why haven't these regulations been into, in effect? And they're completely right. But what I see missing from their analysis, even in Tulsi's analysis right there, it's why haven't they been able to fix the pipes in Jackson, Mississippi? Is there potentially a funding issue? Who is withholding the funding? What is the political party, in the case of Jackson, that is withholding the funding? And you know, why is it that that political party, both political parties, frankly, but in the case of Jackson, that political party, um, more beholden to the interest of, let's say, the uh, the water company that they gave this big break to that precipitated the crisis in, in Jackson, Mississippi? Why are they more beholden to the ind rail industry groups that lobbied to have those regulations stripped in the first place? Um, why is money, you know, the, the money and politics piece of it is absent from the analysis, and instead we get this real focus on the individuals involved, which I don't have a problem with. Everyone knows that Pete Buttigieg is not hardly my favorite, but it's always going to be someone else. It's not the fact of Pete Buttigieg; it's the fact of being that position and being a politician who takes corporate money and is part of a two-party duopoly. And until their analysis gets there, it just feels a little bit like point scoring to me, as opposed to a substantive uh, investment and what the people of this community are going through. I don't think libertarianism says that. You're, you're allowed to poison people, poison their water, make them sick, 
um, do all sorts of things and, and suffer no consequence for it. And, and f libertarianism is all about property rights. If you're if you're if you're making my home unlivable because you've made the air because you recklessly caused an explosion or whatever it is, no, you're supposed to pay, you're not allowed to do that, you're supposed to pay compensation for that. And there's all sorts of ways the legal system has limited how people have to pay, how organizations and companies That's have true, to pay compensation. I don't think Robbie, it's a I've heard you argue, blow to libertarianism. I've heard, heard you argue, for instance, against the existence of the FDA, mm -hmm. arguing that private companies could regulate food as well or better than the government. And in this situation, what we're seeing These are is, two different things, though, the regulation and the liability. Right. I'm talking about the regulation. Right. And that's what Tucker Carlson in, in, is talking about in this clip. So Tucker Carlson, all of them over on Fox News are talking about why haven't Buttigieg and Biden required these higher quality breaks that I talked about in my radar yesterday? Why haven't Buttigieg and Biden required that toxic uh, toxic chemicals, um, sorry, the kind of chemicals that were being carried on the train be part of the regulations uh, labeled as hazardous materials that would have required lower speeds and other kinds of safety regulations. Why didn't that happen? My argument is because we know, this isn't conjecture, that real industry groups lobbied for those regulations not to be in place. And the problem is, there is a problem with government, but is that it's brought up in this corporatocracy. If your argument as a, as a libertarian, broadly speaking, is that we need to have fewer regulations, that we shouldn't have government, that we should let private industry do what it wants, well, then you're in a situation where exactly this happens. And so now your you're argument is— You're strawmanning this concept. The whole thing is government—I mean, the, 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 the government owns the, the tracks, right? They, have, they, they acquire people's land to build them in the first place. I mean, that's, like a, that's a violation of libertarianism in the first place. Well, I, I'm talking about the— the Norfolk Southern Railroad. Yeah. That's who lobbied to get rid of these regulations. And in a world without the government, they would be not only able to do exactly what they've done, but maybe even more. In a world without even... the government, they wouldn't even exist. I'm sorry? They wouldn't even exist. The private rail company wouldn't exist, but for the government? The, 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 the government has to, has to force, force people out of their homes to lay down the tracks I, I, in the I'm first I'm not entirely place. sure what the argument is, is here, Robbie. My point is that I, I Eminent domain is how those things were I built. I understand that you're, you're, you're saying that if people legally were able to be held responsible, then maybe the private industry would see it as, as financially advantageous to and follow And who line. limits their liability? It's but the government. The, no, that's not true. It's corporations who have worked overtime to limit the law's ability to actually hold them accountable. <laughs> who actually does that? It's the they're, legislators. It's the government. Exactly, because they're, they're, they're correct. That's the problem. Robbie. So I think I've, I've said this a couple of times, so I don't think I need to re keep repeating it. But fundamentally, instead of talking about the co corruption of the government, you have these figures over on Fox News talking about the fact that Pete Buttigieg is just a bad person. And as though, although I might agree with that in principle, at the end of the day, Pete Buttigieg is just going to be replaced by another person with an R or a D or an I next to their name, and unless we fundamentally— I mean, he has presided over a unique Unless number of— Unless the of the structural issues, it's just going to keep happening. Sure. But he, he's having a uniquely disastrous term as transportation secretary, I would say, which is maybe not surprising because he has no experience in this field and no— Maybe. But it wasn't Pete Buttigieg that— got rid of those regulations. I mean, but, honestly, it was the Obama administration that was responsible, and it was the Trump administration that was responsible for different aspects of the rulemaking that led to this crisis. So this is not a partisan issue. And my concern is, again, that over on Fox News, there seems to be an a, a investment in point scoring. I was very clear in my radar yesterday that this is a bipartisan tragedy. And if you're more focused on scoring points, I am really concerned that the people in East Palestine aren't actually going to get the kind of comprehensive reforms that would prevent something like this from happening. Yeah, I, I suspect it is an interest in point scoring. Yeah, yeah. I agree with yeah. you on that.
on that. Well, Americans living in East Palestine, Ohio, and its surrounding towns continue to raise red flags weeks after fires burned thousands of pounds of spilled chemicals, sending toxic fumes into the atmosphere. Dozens of residents packed into a high school gym in East Palestine yesterday, uh, where, according to CNN, local leaders took questions from emotional residents who expressed distrust of officials' accounts. Let's take a and there was a noticeable odor in the air, and that is one of the complaints that people brought to the meeting last night. They want to know if the air is, is safe to breathe, why are people getting sick? They're cowards. Norfolk Southern a no-show Wednesday night, citing concerns for employee safety, but pledging to stay in East Palestine to fix it. Hundreds of people turned out in what was supposed to be an open house format, where people could go up to booths and individually direct questions to the EPA and elected leaders. That's not what we came for. We came for a town meeting. East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway said he thought the open house style would be safer, but changed it back to a town hall style midway through. He tried his best to keep it orderly as people shouted out questions. My greatest concern is that my citizens feel safe. But many left the meeting without feeling any safer. If the air is so clean and the water is safe, why is everybody having all these symptoms? My eyes were burning, my head was pounding, my chest was hurting, my throat was hurting, I couldn't quit coughing. Yeah, reports of there being a chemical smell in the air. I saw Jordan Cheriton over Reports at, of dead animals. Yeah, I saw Jordan Cheriton over at Status Quo interviewing a man who raises foxes in the area who said one of his foxes immediately died. Uh, he took the rest of the vet. Some were experiencing neurological issues. Others are just visibly sick. Um, they're showing, they're testing with elevated levels of, you know, liver activity and other kinds of things that are very concerning, especially now we're talking about mammals and not kind of... But the EPA says everything's safe. There's nothing to worry about. I mean, shouldn't, isn't this a, a challenge to liberal acceptance of government expertise and Absolutely. authority. Liberals shouldn't accept government expertise. But we're supposed to I default don't. to the, the science, whatever the scientists, whatever they say. And whoever says that's a moron, but it's yeah. nothing that I think the left, the left no, no, position. No, I know that's not what you say. The left position has always been that there's so much corruption and cronyism in these organizations that we need to get money out of politics. Like all of these things root, root from the same kinds of issues. Moreover, the EPA will say has been defunded Something that, again, that T Tucker Carlson even, uh, this is stuff that's being talked about on Fox News now. Why doesn't the EPA have the resources for this? Even people on Fox News are saying the problem here in part is the routine defunding of these kinds of organizations. So that is part of it. Part of it is that they are saying, they are making more limited claims. Like, we tested these houses for these chemicals and this air quality, and that that is, mm -hmm. we're not finding the presence of those things, right? But just because you're not testing, you're not finding vinyl chloride in this house doesn't mean that there aren't toxic elements in the water, that there are other chemicals that they shouldn't be testing for, et cetera. And I think this is a part of an issue where the lack of kind of science literacy can be exploited by organizations to give the perception that something is safe when in fact it is not. I mean, the, the APA has become a something a lot of conservatives don't like, I think for good reason, because its main goal is to thwart buildings from being development, uh, buildings from being built, various projects from going on, is to like stand in the way of people getting homes and progress, et cetera. And that, that might be, but in this moment, when there's a tragedy like the one that's unfolding, I think a lot of people really wish there were an organization full of neutral scientists that weren't being paid by corporations who could be trusted to make the kind of assessments about health and safety that the people are really relying on. And moreover, 
I think a lot of people would really appreciate, particularly in a working class town like this, the resources to not have to wait around and see what happens, but to actually be relocated somewhere else, to have, um, you know, to be able to pay for hotel rooms or have new housing, get their kids in new schools, have transportation to get them where they need to go. Because people are, are really stuck. They have animals that need to be taken care of. Many people didn't want to evacuate because they, they have responsibilities. They can't just leave their, their livestock. Um, and I think that a lot of emergency protocols don't really appreciate that everyone's life isn't living in a studio apartment in, yeah. in New York City or Washington, D.C. Nobody so, wants to evacuate their home. I mean, yeah. if it's, if it's, I mean, if there's a rampaging fire coming your way, you go. But if it's unclear, I mean, this is, you can't see the harms of this. There are the alleged harms, right? It's in the air. It's in the water. Yeah. You don't know. It's the uncertainty. So, I mean, if it were me and I'm a person with means, I would obviously leave. Mm -hmm. But the, the horrible truth is that for so many people, that's just not an option. So what do we do then? And should we be also talking about having more robust supports for people to get out of Dodge? It's a relatively small town. Like, are we saying as a country, when there is potentially one of the biggest, you know, chemical disasters of the last mm -hmm. few decades at least, we can't even take care of our own people in this way in the richest country in the history of the world. And by the way, as a consequence of, of negligence by a railroad company that itself earns over $10 billion they, a year in profit. They, they should pay for all of it. It's not a challenge to libertarianism to say a company that caused this calamity should pay for all of the associated cost with it. That's you do something wrong, you pay for it. That's yeah, core to my ideology. As we, as we see so often, it just rarely, rarely happens. We saw this with Stephen Donziger in um, Ecuador. Uh, we see it in, in corporate law case after corporate law case. They're very, very good at avoiding liability. So we can agree on what should happen, but we'll have to stay tuned to see what actually does happen. Well, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, last week, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh published an article providing evidence for the proposition that America was responsible for blowing up the Nord Stream pipelines last September. And the mainstream media has done everything it can to ignore this story even exists. As background, the pipeline connected Russia's natural gas resources to the rest of Europe via Germany, bypassing Ukraine, making it an important resource for the health of Russia's economy. German and Finnish taxpayers spent $11 billion to fund the pipeline, and Europeans stood to benefit from access to Russia's gas reserves. And yet, when the pipeline was destroyed last year, the most prominent mainstream theory was that Russia was responsible. To many, this rationale was confusing. The rationale for why Russia would sabotage its own ability to sell its resources to a lucrative market was never convincingly articulated. In the weeks following the explosion, the New York Times' Melissa Eddy asked, was it the Russians trying to rattle the West, the Americans trying to sever a Russian economic ar artery, or possibly the Ukrainians trying to take revenge on Russia? But while, per Eddie's op-ed, the motives for America and Ukraine are fairly straightforward, the Russian angle rattling the West is plainly lacking by comparison. At The Washington Post, Javier Bloss acknowledged suspicions that Joe Biden was responsible, writing that although, quote, on social media, many quickly pointed out that U.S. President Joe Biden had promised to bring an end to the pipeline, conspiracy theorists always see the hand of the CIA in everything. He went on to write that said conspiracy theory was nonsense, 
quote, the clear beneficiary of shutting down the Nord Stream pipelines for good is Russian President Vladimir Putin. How's that? Well, Blas's loosely articulated argument was that disconnecting Europe from Russian gas lines would, and in fact did, cause energy prices to soar in Europe. And Russia, Russia would happily cut off its nose to apparently spite its face. <laughs> but Germany stopped final or, or authorization on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline once Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year, long before Nord Stream 2 was sabotaged. And when Germany froze construction on Nord Stream 2, the Kremlin responded by saying it hoped that that pause was temporary. Like Germany, it stood to benefit financially from its gas contracts with Europe. And those contracts were arguably more crucial, more crucial following the economic sanctions the U.S. and Europe imposed on Russia following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moreover, the Group of Seven Industrialized Nations, or G7, announced a price cap on Russian oil a month before the pipeline sabotage, with the intention of putting a strain on Russia's treasury. If the West understood it could punish Russia by making it more difficult for it to export energy, why would Russia also make it more difficult for itself to export energy. And if the G7 recognized it could place pressure on Russia by dampening its oil uh, uh, exports, doesn't Occam's razor point to a G7-aligned group as responsible for the pipeline explosion? By the end of last year, even mainstream outlets, including The Washington Post, were coming around to the obvious that there was no evidence Russia was behind the attack. But even the Post's coverage opines that, despite a lack of evidence, Russia could still be responsible, citing, quote, its recent history of bombing civilian infrastructure in Ukraine and propensity for unconventional warfare. It's not such a leap, argued the piece, to think that the Kremlin would attack Nord Stream, perhaps to undermine NATO resolve and peel off allies that depend on Russian energy sources, officials said. But while the journalists at the Post don't see a leap, it's at very least a bit of a stretch in my view. Let's review what we knew even before Cy Hirsch's article. The U.S. Navy had recently been observed doing underwater exercises in the Baltic near the pipeline. Moreover, the U.S.'s interest in fighting the Ukraine proxy war to, quote, weaken Russia is quite obviously different from Germany's interests. As we've covered, Germany relied heavily on Russia for energy, a fact which had caused tension between the U.S. and Germany long before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian gas contracts had supplied Germany with 60% of its gas, mostly via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was set to double that amount. As Hirsch points out, President Biden and his foreign policy team, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary of State for Policy, have been vocal and consistent in their hostility to the two pipelines. Now, I know this clip has been played to death, but you know what's coming. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there, will be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What do, what, how, will you, how will you do that exactly, since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will, uh, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. Not only did Biden say that, but 20 days prior, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, said the same thing at a State Department briefing. Quote, I want to be very clear to you today, if Russia invades Ukraine, 
one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Okay, so let's say we have some motive, a tacit admission, and no evidence still that Russia was involved. Now, let's get into what's new from Cy Hirsch. Here's a clip of an interview he gave on Democracy Now! yesterday. Here's what Biden did, and this is what I think the ultimate point of the story, and why so many people, even the intelligence community, are very troubled by it. What he did is he said, I'm in a big war with Ukraine. It's not looking good. Uh, I want to be sure I get German and West, West European support, and I know winter's coming, and if it's going to be bad, I don't want the Germans to say, we got to check out because we're, gonna, we're get, getting massacred. We'll be massacred with no, no, no cheap fuel, and um, our, our economy will go bonkers. We're going to check out, and we're going to open up the gas line, which they could do. So he took away that option. Now, contrast how cogent that narrative is with the Washington Post narrative from before, okay, about how Russia was responsible for this. Now, based on information from an anonymous source, Hirsch reported that last June, quote, Navy divers operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Baltops 22 planted the remotely triggered explosives that, three months later, destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. The source, according to Hirsch, has direct knowledge of the operational planning. Hirsch explains that the divers involved were trained at a Panama City technical diving facility, an important detail because unlike divers that are members of America's Special Operations Command, operations by these Panama divers didn't need to be reported to Congress or House and Senate leadership. Hirsch's report stressed this secrecy. Quote, this is not kitty stuff said a source. If the attack were to be traced to the U.S., it would be a, quote, act of war. This is why, according to Hirsch's source, those involved in planning the attack were dismayed by Biden and Victoria Nuland's statements that all but admitted they had a scheme to stop Nord Stream 2. It was like putting an atomic bomb on the ground in Tokyo and telling the Japanese that we are going to detonate it, said the source. The plan was for the options to be executed post-invasion and not advertised publicly. Biden simply didn't get it or ignored it, according to the source again. But the upside was that Biden's loose lips meant that the CIA could claim the plan was no longer a covert mission. Once it was downgraded to simply highly classified, there was, quote, no longer a legal requirement to report the operation to Congress, according to the source again. Hirsch's source went on to detail a plan for the U.S. to approach the target via Norway. He explained that Norway worked well for several reasons. One was a Norwegian antipathy toward Russia. Another was that Norway had a navy full of excellent sailors and divers with deep sea oil and gas exploration experience. Norway also may have been somewhat self-interested. Blowing up Nord Stream meant that its own natural gas became more valuable in the European market. The plan was to place the explosives in June because... For the past 21 years, during that month, the American Sixth Fleet has sponsored a NATO exercise in the Baltic Sea, providing perfect cover. But according to Hirsch's source, at the last minute, the Biden asked whether the bombs could be activated remotely to create more distance between the NATO exercises and the actual event, presumably to muster up more plausible deniability for U.S. involvement. Now, this was a technically complicated setup, which I encourage you to read about in Hirsch's piece. Again, I cannot attest to the veracity of Hirsch's reporting or, of course, his source. But to the extent that some people think that detail gives the impression of truthiness, there's a ton there, and you can judge for yourself. 
Now, at the end of his piece, Hirsch points out that the American press treated the Nord Stream sabotage as a mystery and labeled Russia as the only likely culprit without establishing any motive beyond vengeance. And here's an interesting detail. Months after the bombing, Hirsch writes that it emerged that Russian authorities had been quietly getting estimates for the cost to repair the pipelines. Not exactly what you would expect from someone who just, you know, blew up the pipelines. But the mainstream U.S. press, on the whole, declined to point fingers at the CIA, even as U.S. officials publicly took a victory lap. Listen to, listen to Antony Blinken at a September 30th press conference describing the Nord Stream explosion as a tremendous strategic opportunity. Ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. Uh, that's very significant. And that offers tremendous um, strategic opportunity for, um, for the years to come. Hirsch also includes in his report a quote from Victoria Nuland testifying at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing in late January. She told Ted Cruz, quote, like you, I am, and I think the administration is, very gratified to know that the Nord Stream 2 is now, as you like to say, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. So, look, there's the evidence, do with it what you like, but let's be clear, there is still, months after the Nord Stream sabotage, no coherent story for why or how Russia carried out this attack. On the other hand, for the U.S., we have motive, uh, albeit anonymous source providing details, and some pretty weird pseudo-admissions from our own political leaders. Now, as some have noted, Hirsch does have some history of almost falling for forged documents claiming that JFK bought Marilyn Monroe's silence about their alleged affair. And there have been other moments where dubious information has been leaked to him and perhaps too credulously reported. On the other hand, in lieu of counterarguments, Hirsch has also been openly smeared by establishment journalists, as Aaron Maté points out here in this tweet, and as Glenn Greenwald also points out here. Now, you'll decide on your own what you make of the story, but given the mainstream media's silence on Hirsch's report, it's important that you know what's been alleged, what's been buried, and start to ask questions as to why. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of the situation and, and how people should be thinking about what happened um, with Nord Stream. You know, I, I, as I've said, as we've talked about this, I know that Cy Hirsch is a great journalist. He has done tremendous work. And I, I think that particularly given the comments made by Biden, by Newland, uh, you're, you're right, the, the, the motive element is there. And then Cy Hirsch was filling in some of the details for how it would be technically possible. Uh, it's plausible, and it, it is not out of character given what the U.S. has done in the past in terms of covert interventions, assassinations, et cetera. So you can't, you can't say, oh, this is beyond the pale. We would mm -hmm. never do this. You're just not paying attention to American history. But all, all that said, I need more. I need documents, or I need to know who the source is, or I, need, I, I would like to know that other parties vetted the source, et cetera. I, so I was just reading um, a really interesting piece. I'll, I'll send it to you after this from Ian Bremmer. Uh, who's a political scientist, um, who, who was pushing back on some of what Hirsch is saying in his reporting. Mm. He says you can publicly track, and he's pointing to people on Twitter who are doing this, and it's a little bit, I think, beyond 
both our abilities to comprehend, but the, it, Hirsch claimed that a Norwegian um, a, a craft was used to facilitate this, and they're pointing to the tracker saying that all of the, all the, the crafts we're talking about were not in that area yeah. at the time. Now, Bremer doesn't, Bremer actually thinks it was not, he, he thinks it was the, he thinks it was the Ukrainians. He, he does not find the case for, against yeah. Russia persuasive. Uh, and what he's saying, and in this piece, which I think is really interesting for G Zero, he's saying that uh, he, he would not have thought the Ukraine's technically capable of this until recently, but they blew up that bridge, they did it, a, 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 they, they assassinated that Russian figure. They've done a couple things that we know are them that are much more technically impressive than you would have thought. And so he thinks that raises the likelihood of it being Ukraine, perhaps with Poland's assistance. Mm. So I, I think that's, you know, I think it's important to keep all that in mind. We really don't know for sure. And anyone making, you know, strong characterizations at this point should really, is probably has some agenda to push. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not that the evidence of pushback or media blackout is dispositive. Yeah. But I do think the fact that there was such a coordinated push among the mainstream kind of corporate outlets that historically are so quick to pick up, you know, State Department lines that are fed to them and that they were all pointing the finger at Russia is suspicious in and of itself. Well, and in the wake of could, Russiagate, this is all going right. to be so suspect. But also they could have pointed their fingers. Yeah. If the point was to... Um, you know, defend America or exclude America from consideration. And if the uh, if the point was actually the truth, then they could have pointed fingers right. in a lot of other directions that were much more plausible. But it is really remarkable to me that all of these months after the case, no one's really come up with a motive for Russia doing this other than it just wants to throw a monkey wrench They're in things. Crazy, wilds, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we'll have more rising for you right after this. New unredacted details in a U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit against megabank J.P. Morgan have revealed convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein repeatedly emailed photos of women to his banker, longtime J.P. Morgan Chase executive Jess Staley, between 2008 and 2012. The two would exchange numerous emails and images during that time frame. They included photos of women in suggestive poses and Staley's praise for Epstein, according to the new court filings. One message from Staley to Epstein even read, I owe you much. Here's attorney Tamara Holder DeMaio on News Nation's Morning in America. Let's watch that. It appears as if there was potentially a conspiracy going on between Jeffrey Epstein and J.P. Morgan Chase. They were in charge of monitoring his accounts. And instead, you have, well, the government alleges, of course, because it hasn't been proven, but the government alleges that he, uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, in, engaged in cover-up tactics and did things to make sure that Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein was able to continue abusing women. The allegations say that over 20 women were paid uh, through J.P. Morgan accounts. So um, I think there's a big problem here because the, the U.S. government, when they come to you, they already have their case. Their success rate is like 99.9%. So they took a lot of time to go through all of the financial records to speak to witnesses before they filed this complaint. So to take just a step back, remember the core lawsuit that we covered some weeks ago is based on the idea that the, the U.S. Virgin Islands is accusing J.P. Morgan of basically turning a blind eye to all of the sex ring, sex trafficking, all of that, so they can continue to profit from Jeffrey Epstein using their bank 
for all of his accounts. And so what has now happened is that there's some, some parts of the filing that have been unredacted and a new memoranda that has given us some of these more details about the involvement of this particular um, uh, J.P. Morgan executive, who seems to have had actually a pretty close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, a lot of a lot of texting, texting pictures of pretty ladies, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, here's <laughs> which, so we've read a part of this quote. Yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Which is from, and again, <laughs> this is from the period where he's already yeah. facing charges for sexual misconduct involving minors. Yeah. Again, it's not, you can't say, well, he didn't know, he just, whatever, would have struck up a friendship with this affable, very easy to infiltrate his way into elite networks guy. This is at the point in which it is public information that he's being put on under house arrest and an ankle monitor for inappropriate contact with minors. Yeah. And you're still sexting with him? Yeah, there's no plausible don't, deniability here. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, here's what, here's what Staley said to Epstein in a November 29 email. He says, Presently, I'm in the hot tub with a glass of wine. This is an amazing place, the U.S. Virgin Islands, presumably. Truly amazing. Next time we're here together, I owe you so much, and I deeply appreciate our friendship. I have few so profound. So any any allegations that this is just like a passing friendship, that this is, I mean, the, the emails really tell a very different story. Moreover, apparently they were communicating to each other about young women using code names of Disney princesses. Mm. Um, I mean, is, is there, I, I ask this question because it, it, it could matter for whether there would be charges against this individual, right? Is there evidence that, the, I mean, is he, the, the pictures he's sharing, are they of underage women? It's not clear. They're talking about young women, but not underage? Yeah, it's, it's not clear. Because it's, he's not, no one is, has suggested yet, right, that he should face any kind of yeah. penalty. And, and this is, it's unclear how much this is, you know, bolstering the fundamental underlying financial case, which is that 20, at least 20 victims of Epstein were paid more than a million dollars collectively through J.P. Morgan accounts between 2003 and 2013. Moreover, it's the- business either way. Right, well, right I mean, that's, that's yeah, they, they basically had that feeling and turned the blind okay. eye. And maybe in the case of this executive, potentially were endorsing some uh. level of this based on the nature of their aye correspondence. Aye. Moreover, the filing alleges that, this is all from the Daily Beast piece on this, the filing alleges that Epstein withdrew more than $775,000 in cash during that time period. Um, and records show that his J.P. Morgan accounts wired nearly $1.5 million to known recruiters, including the MC2 modeling agency, and another to uh, $150,000 to a private investigative firm. So using J.P. Morgan to direct funds to the groups that were procuring underage women for him and his exploits, again, seemingly with some level of knowledge of the nature of the transactions based on the interactions with this one executive at the very least. In December 2009, Staley sent another alleged missive to Epstein. I realize the danger in sending this email, but it was great to be able today to give you in New York City a long, heartfelt hug. Epstein replied the next day saying, you were with Larry and I had to put up with, and included a photo of a young woman, don't tell me, a French wine, Staley wrote. <sighs> yeah, lawyers love it when you say, I know I should be writing this email, but I'm going to write it anyway. Your, your lawyer loves it when you have the self-awareness to know that you're about to do something deeply incriminating. <laughs> well, he was correct. <laughs> anyway. he, there was danger, and he should not have sent it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, this is I, I think, it's such an interesting story, because I think that some folks felt like when Epstein 
died, that it would lead to a kind of a lack of accountability for the broader networks of people that basically enabled him to commit these kinds of crimes. And Jillian Maxwell is, you know, one, but people who, the, the, broader, the broader argument that people with a lot of wealth and power are able to avoid any consequences for this kind of behavior, including the financial institutions that service it, and including people, as we discussed, I think it was yesterday, Bill Gates and Bill Clinton, who have been tied to Epstein and friendly with Epstein. These texts are really incriminating. <laughs> so he, he says, uh, Staley says, say hi to Snow White for me. And Epstein says, what character would you like next? And he says, Beauty and the Beast. Well, one side is available. That sounds like they're talking about underage girls, for sure, and that he's a participant. It's what it sounds it's like. It's certainly what it sounds like to me. I mean, using Disney characters, most of which are children and certainly are supposed to appeal to children. Ariel's 16. I don't know if they actually say on, on camera how old Beauty is supposed to be, but she definitely lives at home with her dad. <laughs> yeah, this is some gross stuff. Gross, gross, gross. Yeah. What well, else is there to say? Not good. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad that this is getting reported out. I think that this lawsuit um, is probably satisfying a lot of that need I, I was talking about before. People to feel like there was actually some broader accountability beyond just the one man here. So yeah, interested to see where this goes, and we'll have more rising for you after this. It's it's been one of the weirder, more surreal experiences of my life because you know, as as a reporter, you you're always um, kind of uh, banging away to try to get one little piece of reality, right? Like you you might make thirty or forty phone calls to get one sentence. Uh, the Twitter files is oh by the way here you know. Uh, take a laptop and look at 50,000 emails, you know, full of all kinds of stuff. And so it's, you know, for, for somebody like me, it's like a dream come true. That was journalist and contributing author of the Twitter files, Matt Taibbi, on Monday's episode of the Joe Rogan Experience, talking about his expose that uncovered the truth about the FBI and Twitter colluding so-called Russiagate and media's efforts to shelf the Hunter Biden laptop story. Taibbi caught some heat, particularly from liberals, for his expose and his defense of Twitter CEO Elon Musk, a point that podcaster Joe Rogan honed in on, calling out those who have sought to demonize Musk since he took over the platform. Let's watch. But Elon, yeah, the, the, he went from being the guy who made electric cars sexy to, like, you know, something to the right of Victor Orban in, in like, <laughs> 10 seconds. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. And the narrative has spread through progressive people. Well, they'll just say it now. It's like they've reached the memo. The memo's got to them. And then they just, I hear people in L.A., I hear people that I know, like, oh, Elon's just so crazy. It's like it was something happened to him. He went nuts and he's a right winger now. Like, how? What are you saying? Like, what, what examples do you have? Like, they don't have an example. They just have this narrative that reached them a signal. Like, Elon bad now. Oh, right. Elon bad now. Elon bad now. Elon bad now. I mean, I think they, they think that because he has, in all fairness, he said, very right? He wants expressly Republicans to win. said that. <laughs> yeah, he has endorsed Ron DeSantis. I mean, if, and that's fine. Like, yeah. Joe Rogan also I mean, said he would probably endorse Ron DeSantis, like he was leaning toward Ron DeSantis right. that he likes to look about. You're allowed to say those things, but don't pretend that liberals who have liberal politics 
who liked when Elon Musk seemed to also have liberal politics are, ma are no longer like that he has Republican politics. I think there has That's been normal. a lot of, I, I'm not sure they stated it there very elegantly, there has been a lot of, he's a fascist, he's the worst sure, thing ever happened. Sure, they make that argument. But but he, like, he is, he's a they, they Republican sound, figure. Yeah, they just sound just yeah. as sloppy and unhinged and irrational in their criticism as liberals who call Elon Musk a fascist. Like, yeah. everyone throwing the maximalist complaint at each other has absolutely nobody responding to the actual criticism at hand. Not to mention that, as we've been talking about, a lot of people who were hopeful that Elon would actually improve the experience on Twitter ourselves included, people who felt like we yeah. were disadvantaged by the previous regime, that we wanted more transparency, that we felt like there was shadow baiting and, and blocking of people that we didn't necessarily agree with, have not had any of that transparency come to fruition. And moreover, we've had new rules implemented that actually make the user experience less good. We were going to talk about this in a later segment, but I think we should probably just talk about it here. Yeah, he had these, <laughs> it sounds like he made some changes in the wake of the Super Bowl. There's been reporting that he was frustrated that his tweets were not performing as yeah, well. Specifically that his Super Bowl tweet did less well than Joe Biden's Super yeah. Bowl tweet. So, Which whatever it's his company. If it's just if it's just a, if a, a platform for Elon to broadcast his thoughts, okay. But that's obviously not what I was hoping to get out of it. I've been very frustrated with the experience on Twitter lately. It, it now seems worse than the the before times, even uh, it, it, because so, something is is broken about the recommendation mm -hmm. for the for you tab. I don't see content from the kinds of people I want to see from any. Like I used to see, I would get the highlights of my colleagues at Reason. Um, you know, people I really like in the media: Jesse Single, Matt Iglesias, Josh Barrow, writers whose work I like to engage with every day. Twitter would make sure I'd seen the most. Nate Silver, um, there were just people. Ross Douthat, people I like. We, I read. We consume different content. <laughs> Right. Yeah. That's not, not all. Yeah. But no, I get what you're but saying. But now I don't see them anymore. And yeah. and, and pr the point being, previously, I liked seeing those things. And mm. Twitter clearly knew me well enough to mm -hmm. know what I wanted to see more of. And now I'm not, I'm not seeing any of that. I'm not seeing things I want to engage with. Yeah, and that's yeah. dis crushingly disappointed because this the last thing of value Twitter was for me because it's not been a good, um, it, it, it's not been good for drawing traffic to videos or written articles. Mm -hmm. That's something I've complained about a lot. So the last thing it was good at doing was being like a curated news feed yes. of, of things I didn't want to miss to stay up to date in the conversations. Absolutely. And that's not happening anymore. So fix that, Elon. Please, please, I'm begging you, fix it. Or, or it's, it's just, I'm just not going to be on Twitter anymore. It's not going to have any valuable value. Absolutely. It's, it's a bizarre thing to want to or to put your own ego in front of your business interest. Then the one thing, you know, one of the maybe perhaps bad faith critiques you can judge um, of Elon Musk was that, you know, he wasn't a really good businessman anyway. And people who liked him and defended him said, well, no, he didn't just buy Tesla. He actually did things that made it a better company than it was before. You know, pe people that were liberal would say, oh, you just inherited this money from your parents' diamond mines. You're not really an innovator. And people would say, well, no, 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 here are all the things that he's done. And that is a debate that's as long as and old as Elon Musk has been in the public mm -hmm. eye. However, the way he's handling Twitter seems to suggest that, at least in this context, there's some real significant criticism for how he's running this particular business. Yes, and it, that might be an exception for Twitter. It's, Maybe. It, it seems like, um, right, we, we talk about, he even he has joked about how much of it, his time it's consuming. Mm -hmm. This is some. This is like a product that he really enjoys, which is different than having some ideas about what its business model should be or how it should function, and it being 
you know, maybe he should be a customer, but not necessarily the owner, or an owner. But not, I mean, even he said he shouldn't be the CEO. He want, what happened to someone else being in place to actually manage and run it? Like, let's make that happen. I don't know. He tweeted a picture of a Shiba Inu out the other day saying, this is the new CEO of Twitter. Yeah, um, he's... <laughs> that's right. as far as I think we've gotten on so the... He tweeted a photo hunt. of, like, Stonehenge is the person's toes and the Easter Island head is the person's head and there's a person under... Like, it's a joke, but yeah. why? What are, what are you doing? Yeah, I don't it's know. It's really so important that we all consume... I mean, even Elon this. Musk super fans are complaining about the fact that their feed is entirely Elon Musk. I, mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. And so to have that be the case, to have such a, I think, a frankly diverse body of criticism about what's been going on with the app, with Elon Musk as an individual, et cetera. Not to mention, by the way, to the extent that he's running this as his personal fiefdom, there have been simple signs of that the whole time. I've been talking about them the whole time. The fact that he chose to ban Alex Jones because he experienced a personal tragedy that Alex Jones you know, triggered. The fact that he banned people like Kanye West that weren't violating the Twitter guidelines per se, but because it was a bad look for him. On and on and on, it's all about all been about his personal proclivities and not at all about the best user experience for everybody else. Okay, that being the case, to have such a diverse, like over the, the last month, so many different kinds of people with so many different kinds of politics having an issue with how the site is being run. And to then have Matt Taibbi and Joe Rogan, whose opinions matter, who, whose work people respect, who kind of present themselves as relatively neutral, and I think are, they do represent some kind of like middle political ground in the United States, not be willing to engage at all with all of these diverse criticisms starts to make them seem like the exact kind of fanboys and one-dimensional thinkers that they have spent their careers critiquing. And that's regrettable, and I hope they change course. Yeah, I, I don't... I think you're right that Elon is actually getting some, it's friendly criticism, yeah. it's not mean-spirited, but like, what's going on here? I, I, like, I count myself in that, that camp. I'm glad the Twitter files exist. I, I hope they continue to exist. There's, maybe there's more to learn still. I, I think it's tremendously important what Matt Taibbi and others have done. I, I'm grateful for it. Um, and I'm grateful to Elon for facilitating it, but we just, like, the way it is now is not good. And, and you, everyone can see that. Would you rather have old Twitter and no Twitter files, or is the, no. the disclosure worth the destruction of the app? I think the, the disclosure app? was worth it, yes. Well, let's see if uh, Elon Musk and his $44 billion investment feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> More rising right after this. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley proposed a social media account ban for children, everyone, under 16 years of age. Hawley introduced the Mature Act on Tuesday, which would require social media platforms to verify that users are at least 16 years old by scanning a government-issued ID, and it would prohibit social media companies from opening accounts to anyone under 16. The legislation would allow parents of children under 16 to sue social media platforms for damages if they allow their child to open an account. Halley said in a press release, children suffer every day from the effects of social media. At best, big tech companies are neglecting our children's health and monetizing their personal information. At worst, they are complicit in their exploitation and manipulation. It's time to give parents the weapons they need to strike back. 
Daily Caller reports. According to The Hill, the legislation would also set up regular audits that the Federal Trade Commission conducts at least once every six months to ensure that the large platforms are complying. Who everyone wants to grow government when it's to do what yeah. they wanted it to do. Uh, 100%. <laughs> I think this law is a disastrously bad idea. I'm not a particularly a fan of Josh Hawley anyway, and mm -hmm. it's for exactly this kind of legislation is why. Uh, there's so much wrong with this, it's hard to even know where to begin. But do, I, I, do conservatives appreciate how like non-conservative, how radical it is to sudden, suddenly and sweepingly ban millions of young people, including teenagers, 15-year-olds, from access to the fundamental corners of the internet? I mean, they use, young people use, use um, YouTube and TikTok to get their news. They use the messaging components of Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth to communicate with their friends. You are, you are closing off millions of young people from access to socialization, to news and information. This would include YouTube. I hadn't really thought about YouTube. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of advertisers who are very upset about this. Some of the most popular accounts on YouTube are like Mr. Beast that appealed directly to right. children, right. not to mention how many kids, parents of toddlers, put on YouTube yes. shorts, the like YouTube child content, specifically use the child filters that YouTube has built in. That's all gone. Read a book. Read a book. I guess that's what he's saying. So this is, so that is crazy. Like mm -hmm. that is truly crazy. And look, I get, I, I appreciate that social media, excessive social media use is having a negative mental health sure. impact on some users. Fine. But, me. <laughs> but what you're saying is, and, and also this is anti-parent, because what you're saying is that parents don't have the right to decide this for their own families and their own kids. You're saying the federal government is deciding this on behalf of all parents everywhere immediately, instantly. Okay, that's, that's crazy. So, okay, some kids may be harmed by social media. Many other kids, their lives enriched and enhanced because of it. I mean, we've just run this experiment. In the last three years, the government like forbid kids to go outside. I mean, not quite that extreme, but uh, limited uh, many of their social and extracurricular activities in very unhealthy sure. ways. And we know that th this was terrible for kids' mental health. It would have been so much worse without social media. Without, you, you deprive kids of all access all access whatsoever to any network of socialization outside their parents and who lives in their house, that's, that's really crazy. It's, it's an extremist it's policy. An extreme it's right-wing extremism do. if they're ever, I'm sorry, yeah. I tend not to use words like that, yeah. but oh my goodness, libs want Medicare or something and it's left-wing extremism. If you, you gotta be able to call a spade a spade. A new national survey conducted by the CDC sounded the alarm about teens in crisis, showing nearly 30% of teenage girls said, to your point, Robbie, they've considered death by suicide, and three out of five girls said they felt persistently sad or hopeless. PBS News writes this comes as there is a growing, growing concern about the impact of social media. Yeah, definitely a growing Th concern. That being said, but... isn't, the, isn't the solution to not buy your kids a smartphone? Absolutely. Not buy your kids a laptop. Put a computer in the middle of the living room. That's how we grew up. There was a computer in a public space, limit, and we used that. Put some limitation on the amount of use, <clears throat> or 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 a reward and incentive system. You know, did you do your homework? Okay, you've earned an hour of social media time. Like right, these but, are tried and true parenting methods that have worked right, with every the, other technology. For the people who want there to actually be a ban, you know, I think the the Howley argument is, well, I can't keep my kid from accessing it. Well, yes, you can, but you want your kid to have a smartphone, and that's why you can't. Keep Keep your kid from accessing yeah. it because you're not willing to to deal with the trade-offs here. Also, I just really can't stress how much 
social media. Like kids are have homework assignments that are based on them mm -hmm. being able to access these apps. They do research that's based on them being able to access these apps. Absolutely. You, as you pointed out, news is consumed primarily through the context of these apps for not just like kids, but me. You know, I, I I'm gonna go to Twitter. In, in New York Times homepage on my phone much more frequently than I'm going to turn on cable and watch CNN. And so, I don't know, it seems extremely short-sighted and it frankly feels like Republicans are hell-bent on minting a whole generation of brand new Democratic Party voters with this kind of policy. There's that too. I mean, what, yeah, what do you think the implications are from taking away swiftly yanking out of, of their ability to access something that millions of, of kids Love. They're 16 now. Some don't like it. They'll be 18 in 2024. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, and then you want, and then the Republican Party is going to wonder why young people hate the Republican Party. Yeah. You, you, you took away, you took away Twitter. That was your idea. You took away, uh, you know, whatever it is. Snapchat, yeah. Instagram. It's just dumb. Facebook. It's not well thought out. YouTube. So, so there are. I can go down the list of problems with this. Um, it, it will not. It, it might be straight up just like a violation of the First Amendment. Um, uh, I, the, I think the most proximate Supreme Court precedent on this is when the state of California tried to restrict the sale of violent video games mm. to young people, and a Supreme Court decision that was authored by the conservative, the arch-conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said, no, video games are they are they're like Grimm's fairy tale. They're, they might have violent content, but they have literary merit and worth. You can't restrict them. Sorry. Uh, I, I don't see what the difference here would be for, for how, how you would argue that this is not First Amendment yeah. protected expression if there's a right for, you know, kids and teenagers to engage in First Amendment pr protected expression in that category. I don't see why this would be any different. Yeah. And, again, not saying that Parents and families are obligated to set no limits on kids' exposure to social media, but this is a decision left to individual families. Maybe, I guess you could maybe make an argument even for individual communities. At the federal, this is at the federal level. This is saying all families in the U.S. have no right to set their own social media policies for their kids. That there's no difference between, that you, you couldn't have the case where here's a 14-year-old who has bad um, anxiety and and uh, is depressed and, and easily feels social competition and it's unhealthy for this person to be up all night looking at Instagram. And this 14-year-old is well adjusted and doing well in school and and but can't partic participate in extracurricular activity and really enjoys being able to connect with their friends. You're saying there's no difference between these two cases. It's banned for both. That's really bad. Yeah, it's 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 doing what Republicans say that they don't want to do, which is to take away the ability for parents to parent it's, and make their own decisions. It's doing what Republicans say they don't like about Democrats, nanny state kind of stuff. I mean, this is the most it's textbook the most nanny, nanny state, state thing, thing you could possibly, possibly do. do. And I was going to joke, look, if you if you don't want your kid to have access to these things, you can limit their ability to purchase these devices, which are pretty expensive and most kids can't afford on their own. But then I remember that there's been this recent uh, effort by some Republicans to attack child labor laws. <laughs> so maybe this is all, that's not exactly the workaround. But I mean, you, you have, and we point to the difference, it's an important difference between, um, so, so uh, young girls, their mm -hmm. mental health outcomes, self-reported again, who knows, but it, it is worse, it has gotten worse. Uh, there, there are theories that the way that young girls are more likely to use social media is less healthy, Instagram in particular, that a lot of teenage boys are playing video games with each other, which are like collaborative and, and healthy. And I, like this would affect Twitch too, right? This would take away, 
I mean, a, a, a lot of kids stream video game content, and it's healthy and good. Their, their mental health hasn't gotten any worse. Somewhat. I mean, I don't mean to be that person, but there is a lot of right-wing, like, Nazi recruitment, fascist recruitment that happens on the sites. A lot, a lot of, of incidents, a lot Nazi of incidents recruitment. of um, bullying and, like, racism that's used because it's so anonymous, and, but there's the voice component, so a lot of um, users report being called the N-word and stuff on those kind of apps. So I'm not just saying, I'm just saying it's not a paradise necessarily for men, for boys either, especially if you're a, a, a boy of color. But I, I, I do completely, I, th I think the reality is if you have a kid that is having an issue with any of these apps, it's your responsibility as a parent to limit their ability to get right. to it or make that decision on your own. You can't basically decide that you, wanna, you don't mm -hmm. want to have to do parenting, so you're going to get the police state to come and do the parenting for you. My kid is depressed. Let's further isolate my kid from social networks. Also, like it's, that, it's that not is not going to work. You yeah. have older siblings. Yeah, the parents are just going to make their the kids best the thing, accounts. The best thing you can say about this is it's not going to work. It's not going to work. They will find ways around it. And we didn't even talk about the horrible um, like surveillance and data collection yes. aspect of this. So people are right. <laughs> people are rightly concerned about how much information we're giving to uh, to these platforms. And you're saying you're you're worsening that. You're saying we got to submit. And, our and if I licenses. set an account, if I if I scan my ID to get my little cousin an account, yeah, are they going to come and arrest me? Like if I bought her beer? Well, I guess <laughs> okay. they're not going to arrest anyone. They're going to give you a license to sue. Yeah, but I wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to create a bunch of, uh, sounds like a good uh, good outcome for trial. Attorneys, it's, but, yeah, uh, it's outrageous. Not, a, not well thought out, but uh, that's our take on it. We'll have more <laughs> rising right after this. We've got some developing news this afternoon. A train carrying at least one car's worth of hazardous materials has derailed outside of Detroit, Michigan, according to Fox News. Police have closed the area surrounding the accident pending an investigation. Now, this comes just after a Houston area train incident killed a driver and derailed over 20 cars over the weekend. And yes, the cargo on the train included hazardous materials, prompting Union Pacific to monitor air quality at the site of the crash, according to the Splendora Police Department. Mm -hmm. These high-profile derailments come, of course, just weeks after a chemical incident along the rail lines in East Palestine, Ohio, made national headlines. Residents there voiced concerns about lasting health effects during a town hall last night. Local journalist Jordan Miller attended and told News Nation what he saw. Let's watch. This was supposed to be an open town hall meeting at first, and then they decided, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to make it where people walk in and they will just walk up to booths and ask people their questions. And that made people even more irritated. And in that video that you just saw with the mayor, he got really loud in the gym along with another resident and said, this isn't what you guys showed up for. You guys showed up for answers, and we're going to give you the answers that you need. And he looked at everyone. He yelled, we're going to have everyone go up in the stands, and they can ask questions. We just hope everyone stays civil. If it doesn't, then we're going to have to end it. But Mayor Trent Conaway was very passionate yesterday, and he was annoyed that Norfolk Southern, they're the ones who moved it from a town hall originally and to this open forum with the booth set up that they walk around and then Norfolk Southern never even showed up. If you want to talk about angry residents, that that 
peed them off a little bit more. Jordan, there's so much with that because you, you're right. It went from town hall to open house where they were going to hand out pamphlets as if that was supposed to answer questions. And then we see the mayor upset because I'm sure he too is feeling the pressure from his neighbors. He knows everybody in town. He's part of that community himself. My question to you is, do you think that the residents of East Palestine feel any better after last night's town hall now that they see that the mayor is also irritated by everything that's happening? Not at all. Not at all. I spoke with one woman uh, after the uh, after the town hall concluded, and she said, I'm a mother of five. I have five boys, and I still don't know if I can give them a bath. I wanted answers. I came in here with a lot of questions, and I left with a lot of um, a lot of those questions unanswered. People are still very upset in East Palestine, and they want answers. And what they were most furious about is Norfolk Southern. The, the people at, at the head of the train derailment, they weren't there, and they quoted because they feared for their safety. Uh, as if the people living there dealing with possibly contaminated water aren't fearing for theirs. Jordan, I have to ask you, though, are people more frustrated with the federal government, or are they more frustrated, in your opinion, with Norfolk Southern? That is a great question. I, if you were to walk up to someone right now in East Palestine and, and ask them, I think that they would say uh, Norfolk Southern. They want answers from Norfolk Southern. We just found out yesterday that there was a woman who, who lives fairly close to the railroad tracks who said that Norfolk Southern deemed her house toxic and unsafe for her to re, uh, return. And that was news to everyone, including the mayor and the fire chief of East Palestine. But people were calling out the White House. They were wondering, where is Pete Buttigieg in, in this whole thing? They want answers, and, and they feel as though the White House is kind of turning a blind eye to everything that's happening in East Palestine. Yeah, there's plenty of blame to go around. I don't think there's a wrong person of those two, the government in uh, Norfolk uh, Southern, to point your finger at. Uh, there's a lot of responsibility across the, uh, across the board for reasons that we've talked about. I mean, really, it is this—the word fascism is thrown a lot around a lot, but the union between the corporations and the government, which is the definition that we really should all be going by, is really all on display here, where you have technology that was invented through the ingenuity and labor of American workers that was routinely ignored. At one point, we had the journalist from The Lever on yesterday. She talked about how, at one point, Norfolk Southern was the one advocating and bragging about having the new breaking technology. But the second it came, became the case that they were going to have to use it across the real industry, real lobbyists started saying, no, we don't want to have to actually implement this like half a billion dollar um, uh, break system. And they lobbied hard against it. They didn't have to implemented. That was decades ago. And we have seen incidents after incident after incident of derailment. These things get swept under the rug. Nobody has to be liable. We talked yesterday a little bit about what happened with the last big uh, train crash like this with the same t chemicals in New Jersey. The, the rail company, I think it was Conrail in that case, paid out five hundred a thousand dollars to people in this low-income community and cross their fingers and hope and pray that there's not going to be long-term health effects of the spill going on down the line but the people in East Palestine seem to be aware that that's not good enough and they're waiting for someone anyone to take responsibility is this year having more train crashes than our normal certainly we're getting a lot more media coverage of train crashes but that doesn't necessarily mean it's out of the ordinary how many are happening? I just don't know. Well, I Do think we that know? they have been 
actually rather common. And I think you're right that part of this is that there's more media attention to them. Mm -hmm. But that's not a bad thing. The, the, the question that we should be asking is why there wasn't more media attention to them before. Because remember, even in the context of the Norfolk uh, Southern crash, the media was silent on it for a long time. And frankly, I think but for the iconic optics of that huge plume huge rising to the air cloud. and the fact that we just had that Don DeLillo movie came out that had the same thing yeah. happen in the same place, that's what really pushed it into the national Secretary sphere. Mayor Pete should visit. It's a, it's a site of a massive calamity under his ostensible purview. What happened to good old-fashioned politicians going down there, getting their hands dirty, at taking, fielding some questions from frustrated families, maybe that would help set them at well, ease. Well, if you, if you heard what that reporter that just uh, was speaking in that clip said, apparently Norfolk Southern people are concerned to go because they're, they're afraid for their, for their safety. And, you know, that sounds I, a little ridiculous. I, I completely, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't want to pantomime like the way Obama went to Flint and pretended to drink the water. Like, I certainly don't want people to say, hey, I was here, and so therefore it's safe and everybody should relax when we know it's not true. And frankly— Secretary Mary Pete lives in Michigan. Right, that's where he got his. I, I believe that's where he bought a house uh, with Jason, and they have. Kids oh, really? Yeah. Not in. Um, not in Detroit area, but in Michigan. Not in uh, South Bend, Illinois. No, I think I'm pretty sure they moved to Michigan. Oh, interesting. I, I didn't potentially, realize potentially, so that someone oh could make a, a presidential run, run. Senate, Senate run, run at some point. Oh. Uh, because uh, uh, one of Michigan's senators announced her retirement. Interesting. Uh, Stabenow. Well, good luck with that, with such sure a, that an up. enormous crisis happening right there on the board. And look, the point that was also made about, look, it is horrible for a parent not to know if they could be yes, their I'm children. Correct. He changed his residency, too. He lives in uh, Traverse City, Michigan. Mm. Well, like the reporter saying, it's horrible not to be able to know if you're going to bathe your children. And what's even more horrible to think about the fact that so many Americans, for various reasons, have been in that exact situation for years, we're talking. We're talking Obama going to Flint. That I mean, that dates really how long this crisis has been going on. Talking about what's been going on in Mississippi, and I've been really heartened, frankly, to hear a lot of the conservative reports, you know, including all of those other water events as part of the ongoing infrastructure problem in the United States of America. The question is. Are you going to support the kind of infrastructure funding that the Build Back Better bill did include that was supposed to address some of these problems? Mm -hmm. Are we actually going to be critical of the role that lobbying dollars pay in influencing politicians to green light all of the uh, deregulations that enabled this kind of crisis? Are we going to actually provide the funding that allows the EPA to not only do the kind of checks that will actually determine whether or not people can go back to their homes, but also to resettle people while they're figuring it out, even if they are from these low-income communities that so often are the ones affected because those are the ones that we drive hazardous rail chains through? I mean, these are a lot—this is, a, I think, a real reckoning moment for a lot of people to reorient their politics and say this isn't about— red, blue, left, right, this is a top-down issue, and whether or not when real people are affected by a real crisis like this, we're willing to mobilize the enormous resources of our nation to help them or just complain, fear-monger, and point fingers. Mm. Well, we will continue to follow any updates in the train derailments, and we'll have more rising right after this. Jamie Rogozinski, founder of Wall Street Bets, the Reddit forum that fueled the 2021 meme stock mania, is suing the platform for banning him from the Wall Street Bets sub he created, infringing his trademark to Wall Street Bets and violating his publicity rights. Social media lawyer Robert Freund breaks down the case, tweeting, Rogozinski called out Reddit for taking advantage of content creators so that it can line its pockets with billions of dollars. He says Reddit claims to espouse inclusion while walking the walk 
of exploitation. Friend joins us now to dive deeper into this story. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for having me. Okay, help us understand the, the contours of this. So the founder of Wall Street Bets, he has been credited with kind of driving all the fervor to um, invest in the stocks that created this huge bubble. What was that? Is it just last year or the year before now? I can't even remember. That was so exciting to folks, the idea that the little guy was going to hold on to the bag, drive the value of the stock sky high. People made small fortunes off of this, but of course it all came tumbling down, in part because there were all of these restrictions right, on people's ability to use the uh, trading platform that made these kind of bets accessible to regular people to begin with, and also because of some moderation on these Reddit forums. So what's the basis of this lawsuit now? So th this lawsuit is based on a decision that Reddit and some of the other moderators of that subreddit made a few years ago to essentially oust the founder, the original creator of the subreddit. And he's claiming that by blocking him and by Reddit continuing to use the Wall Street Bets name and mark, he's losing a significant amount of money because he wrote a book about Wall Street Bets and his involvement with it. He's losing sales because of that. Uh, he's lost contracts related to his use of the Wall Street Bets name and so forth. And now that the, the subreddit is even more popular than it was when he was a moderator, that he's feeling that economic, that financial impact even more. And so he's, he's brought this lawsuit to attempt to right what he perceives as that wrong. Is that argument going to be persuasive from a legal standpoint, you know, given that it's uh, he's obviously doesn't own or is part of Reddit itself? Did he, you know, trademark it, that kind of situation? I, I think he faces a real uphill battle on most, if not all, of these claims. He, he applied to trademark the Mark Wall Street bets in 2020. The trademark uh, board rejected that application initially, and then Reddit stepped in to oppose it. And he, he's going to have a tough time arguing that he used the mark first. You know, when, when you create a subreddit, Reddit owns the subreddit. The people who contribute content to Reddit retain ownership of that content, but everyone grants Reddit a very broad license to essentially use the content however they want for whatever purposes. So it's going to be hard for him to argue that he has a valid uh, trademark in the Wall Street Bets name. And the I think the publicity rights claim is even more challenging for him because publicity rights protect the right to commercially exploit your name, image, or likeness. And he's not saying Reddit is doing that by continuing to use the Wall Street Bets name and promote the subreddit and so forth. He's saying, I'm, I'm so closely associated with that subreddit that you're infringing on my publicity rights because of my association with it. But that, at least in California, is not how publicity rights work. So I, I expect that, as Reddit spokespeople have said, they're going to try to dismiss this early on. And I, I think, you know, if I had to place a bet right now, I, I would think that Reddit would probably prevail. But you never really know. And it, it remains to be seen what arguments each side will put forth. What about the argument that he was wrongly banned in the first instance? So he's trying to say that the reason he was suspended was because he was attempting to monetize the subreddit. And he's taking a sort of narrow reading of Reddit's terms, which say, as a moderator, 
you can't uh, enter into contracts on behalf of a subreddit and you can't enter into some relationship where you get paid to perform moderation services. So he's saying, that's not what I was doing. I wrote a book. It's not related to my activities as a moderator. And so Reddit went outside of their own community guidelines and their own rules in deciding to ban me. I think the, the trouble he faces with that kind of argument is that is a very narrow reading of what the terms say. There's other sections of Reddit's terms of service that say effectively, you can't use the services or any of the content commercially at all. And we can make the decision to ban a moderator or suspend an account essentially in our sole discretion if we feel like what you're doing is not consistent with Reddit's ethos, basically. And that's what Reddit has said he did. And, and so that's the, the challenge that he'll face in convincing a judge that, oh, Reddit actually overstepped in a way that, that breaches their own terms. Right. That sounds very difficult to overcome because I assume, like other, you know, social media platforms, other internet sites, that, you know, they have the guidelines, these are the rules, and then they protect themselves by also having a rule such like you just said that, you know, we can really, reading between the lines, we can really ban you for any reason. So then you, in order to stop an eventuality like this where someone says, well, you banned me for the wrong reasons, they say, well, we don't, the, the reason is we banned you. We get to do that. Um, so he's not, so he would have to overcome that in the first place, which doesn't sound likely. Right. And, and the real thrust of the case has to do with the trademark portion of it and less about sort of the did Reddit breach its own contract when, when it terminated me or, or banned him from being a moderator and restricting his access. And, and like I mentioned, you know, he's, he's got a tough road ahead of him if he's going to convince the court that he has enforceable rights in that mark and especially that his publicity rights were violated. Out of curiosity, Given what happened with, um, what was it, Robin Hood, and the the ways that, you know, some of these institutional actors were being pressured to basically stop, you know, stop trading to burst the bubble. Um, I'm curious whether or not the choice to remove him as moderator had anything to do with, was it at all related to trying to prevent similar kinds of behavior that resulted in the spike in stock price and, and that kind of gain stop phenomenon? Was he one of the people that was encouraging that? And so this is a case of institutional actors using the legal authority, even if they are legally in the right, to prevent him from doing that? Or is this kind of unrelated from that kind of behavior? So uh, a lot of what you're referencing occurred, especially the media attention around it, after he was already removed. I see. And so there, it doesn't it doesn't look like the reason that he was removed and Reddit's not saying and, and, and there's no facts alleged suggesting that the reason they ousted him is because of that sort of concern over what Wall Street bets itself is about, which is enabling uh, greater access to the markets for the everyman. Mm-hmm. What this is really about is, uh, as he's alleged it, and from everything that I can tell, is they didn't like the fact that he's trying to make money off the subreddit, which you're not supposed to do. And the other members of the community saw his actions as trying to capture the economic benefit of being the moderator and, and what the subreddit is about for himself. And it, it doesn't appear to be related to that that issue that you're talking about with concern over 
um, Wall Street bets and how it impacts markets. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's good to know. This has been really informative. We appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. We'll have more rising for you after this. Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of GLAAD, a media advocacy organization working to accelerate acceptance for LGBTQ people, tweeted yesterday, the New York Times has long had a reputation as a leader in the world of media, but the example they are setting for coverage of transgender people is downright shameful. GLAAD wrote, for more than a year, the New York Times has stood for irresponsible, biased coverage of transgender people. The Times has repeatedly platformed cisgender people spreading inaccurate and harmful misinformation about transgender people and issues. This is damaging to the paper's credibility, and it is damaging to all LGBTQ people. Author and reporter Lisa Selen Davis wrote a response letter to GLAAD about the New York Times' coverage in a new Substack piece and joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let us know what, what your argument was in response to the New York Times uh, letter. I actually agree with GLAD that the New York Times has engaged in irresponsible and biased reporting, but I disagree about the specifics. I think the New York Times has been reporting in an impossibly narrow way especially about kids and gender medicine. And they've been ignoring the stories of the many, many people and families who've gotten hurt by the affirmative method. So I do think they're biased in a way. So, uh, sorry, you, you just broke up a little bit there, but I think that, I think we've got you back. Some, I wonder what you make. I think that there's an argument that people have been making for a while that there has been absolutely no coverage, let's say, of detransitioners, of um, people who, uh, let's say, are perhaps provided treatment earlier than it should have been provided, et cetera. Um, and that having some balance there, having even a discussion of transitioners, which wasn't really the norm until relatively recently, is a move in the positive direction. At very least, there shouldn't be a ban or complete exclusion of talking about the reality of the world, even if in the same way that it can be uncomfortable to talk about people who lie about rape. Of course, some people, even though they're in the extreme minority, do lie about rape. But other people say that the trajectory of the coverage leads to the other pro problem in the, in the reverse, uh, which is, for example, someone like Matt Walsh, who was recently questioned about, well, how many women or how many people do you think ultimately do get trans uh, transition surgery every year? And he wildly overestimated by orders of magnitude. And I wonder what you make of how to achieve the, the, a balance that approximates truth and doesn't lead to a, a kind of a moral panic about something that is still relatively uncommon. Well, we don't know how many, especially young people transition. And, and I'm personally unconcerned with uh, what adults do with their bodies. And I work with many adult trans people who are concerned about the way this conversation is going or not going. But as far as kids go, uh, we don't know. We don't know how many transition. We don't know how many get hurt. We don't know how many are happy we have very poor data collection in this country. And when you have 
journalists and advocacy groups calling for less daylight, less coverage, that's not a good thing. We need more. We need to understand what's happening in the clinics. We need to know what's happening in these families. We need to follow the trajectory of the children. And we especially need to pay attention to the science. And one of the most shocking things about this GLAD letter is that it asserts the science is settled. That is absolutely not true. Just because uh, some medical organizations have endorsed the affirmative model of care doesn't mean the science is settled. In fact, all over the world, um, many, many clinicians and countries and their healthcare systems are rethinking the approach to treating gender dysphoric youth because of bad outcomes, because uh, the people asking for interventions are very different than the people on whom the research was conducted. We need more daylight on this, not less. Censorship is not the answer. It's, um, it's something we need to all be looking at and talking about. And the idea that listening to the science and the evidence, that listening to those who've gotten hurt is somehow bigoted or hateful or right-wing um, that's out. That's outrageous, and it's um, it amazes me that journalists sign the letter because it's their job to find out the whole story. And I've only been advocating that we find out the whole story. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I just had to ch ch push back on one aspect of that that you said that we don't have the numbers. But what I was referring to was Matt Walsh on the Joe Rogan show, biggest podcast in the country, saying, "quote that there were millions of youths." Uh, who were on hormone blockers, millions of young people on hormone blockers. And in real time, they fact-checked it on the show and found that the actual number was 4,780. Again, there's a lot of ways you can collect data. I don't know exactly what the numbers are. I appreciate that there isn't complete transparency when we're trying to measure anything, how many kids are in poverty, how many kids are abused. It's difficult to get specific numbers on any of that. But there does seem to be a very wide gap between what Matt Walsh's perception of the issue is, the size and scope of the issue or the threat or however you want to characterize it, uh, and what the reality is. And I wonder, you know, I completely appreciate wanting to make sure that the stories of trans, uh, detransitioners, et cetera, don't get blacklisted or censored. But is there any concern that there's a way that this kind of the coverage of these issues is leading people like Matt Walsh to believe other wrong facts in the other direction? That can also be contributing to the slate of anti-trans legislation that's been coming down that is doing things like banning dressing even in drag, which I think most people see as a kind of uh, infringement that's very anti-freedom. Anti yes, I, I have a lot to say about that, and I'll, I'll try to be concise. Um, Matt Walsh is not a good spokesperson for this issue, mm. and I have constantly implored the left to get involved. We must admit that there are things going horribly wrong with this, and we must become part of reform, because otherwise we cede it, we cede the issue to people like Matt Walsh who believe women belong in the kitchen, etc. So the media has been um, really guilty of framing this as a left-right issue, but it really isn't. Um, 
many of the the kids getting involved in this are actually the children of more left-wing people. And, and I should say the teenagers, because there are very different cohorts, and that's an important part of understanding the science, is that there are childhood onset gender dysphoric kids who are a really, really different group from these teens who are suddenly coming out as trans and demanding medical interventions. So it's really not a left-right issue. And dissenting, questioning, wanting to understand it in full, none of that is hateful, bigoted, or right-wing. So when I see this GLAD letter and the, and the New York Times letter from the contributors repeating those talking points that questioning is bigotry, um, it, it makes me nervous that all of these voices will, um, will continue to be silenced. Um, we can't fact check really how many kids are on puberty blockers. Reuters did an analysis with an insurance company, but we don't know. I, I, it's probably not millions. It's probably many more than 4,000. And meanwhile, um, we, we don't have long-term data on the effect of puberty blockers. But when GLAD says, oh, these have been used for years, well, they have, not for this condition, um, in much younger kids um, who've, who've gone through puberty, what, what uh, the medical industry dreams too early. Um, and many of those people grew up and, and sued the makers of puberty blockers for the long-term damage to their health. So it, it's interesting about, look, we're such a small group, we're not worth reporting on. But then sometimes the argument is, hey, we're millions of uh, people in this population, so we deserve coverage. I don't think it, the argument is that they're not worth reporting on because the group is small. I think the argument is that people believe the group is much bigger than it is, and there is an effort to make it seem like it's a, a bigger issue in order to draw political focus to it and perhaps even distract people from other political issues that they might otherwise be voting on, economic populism, et cetera, that the, the Republican Party likes to perhaps give lip service to but not deliver on. I mean, I think that's the argument. I, I certainly don't think there's any group that's so small that if something bad is truly happening, it's not worth paying attention to. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think, I think it you could argue that it's a small group, but in schools throughout America, kids are learning to think about gender quite differently than old Gen Xers like myself. We were reared on free to be you and me, that we need not be limited by stereotypes, that we can have any job, that we can wear any clothes, that we can defy gender stereotypes. But there's been a massive shift in how young people are learning about gender. And now they're learning that it's a feeling that you have inside yourself, an innate feeling. And that if you have a certain feeling about yourself, you can change your body to match that. And that is a, that is a very, very different way of thinking about gender. So, and it, and it, it is part of, um, besides social media and some other factors, part of this relative explosion of um, trans kids or an exponential increase, sometimes a four or 5,000% increase at some clinics of kids seeking medical interventions. So maybe there are 10, 15, 20,000 kids on puberty blockers, maybe many more, we don't know. And maybe just 4,000. Maybe just 
maybe just 4,000. I, I doubt that, but um, just, well, I mean, just because of how many I, I know myself, but, um, but I think well, I know, I know zero. <laughs> You know, so that's the thing. That's the thing about anecdotal oh. evidence. Well, before we uh, we're going to have to wrap here in a second, but I, I wanted you to react. Yeah, so I, your piece is is great on Substack. I encourage everyone to read it. And you know, you mentioned that the UK, Sweden, and Finland have done these reviews of how gender care is being handled and have you know decided to kind of reverse course. There's also a great post for Barry Weiss's The Free Press recently, written by someone who worked in a clinic. For uh, for young people to to get gender affirming care, who is like totally supportive or has been supportive of the work being done, but talks about trends over time that have have distressed her, specifically in how easy and immediate the recommendation of care such as puberty blockers is when the when the patient talks to the doctor, and I think that is something that alarmed me because I don't I'm not, I'm I don't think I'm in the position of saying that I even I that I want this ban for anyone including for kids I, I generally you know it's not my business what families want to do and work out with their doctors it's not my business but I would want at least the process to be rigorous or you know to make sure this is actually in the child's best interest or even it, actually what the child wants and I and we're seeing I think um, alarm bells being sounded about whether that, whether the the process before prescription is rigorous and thorough enough to make sure that's the right course of action for every kid who walks into one of these clinics. Yeah, I think the bans are really get in the way because then what we end up focusing on is Republicans terrorizing gender diverse people, and we don't want the government telling us what we can do for our kids or what our kids exactly. can do. We want medical associations and clinics and um, to, to create guidelines based on evidence. And we want to create policy out of cost benefit analysis. We cannot do that if we are not acknowledging the costs. Hmm. So I, I agree with Brianna, you know, there are, there are some terrible laws. There are some terrible laws coming out of the left also frightening kind of reactions and to what the Republicans are doing. Mm -hmm. And we need to, we need the media, if no one else is going to do this, we need the media to listen to all of these different voices. Censorship is not the answer. We have reached out to GLAAD for comment and have invited the organization's president and CEO, Sarah Kate Ellis, to join us to continue this conversation. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. A feeling this is going to be the must-watch segment of the day. Don Lemon had some interesting remarks uh, while discussing Nikki Haley and Joe Biden, seated with his female co-hosts. Um, you know what? Why don't you just watch? This whole talk about AIDS makes me uncomfortable. I think that... I think it's the wrong road to go down. She says people, you know, politicians or something are not in their prime. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry. When a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. What do you that's talk? Not Wait. I, that's not according to me. Prime for what? Uh, it depends. I mean, it's just like prime. If you look it up, it'll say, if you look, if you Google when is a woman in her prime, it'll say 20s, 30s, and 40s. I don't necessarily. 40s. Oh, I got another. I'm not saying I agree with that. 
So I think she has to be careful about saying that when you know, politicians aren't in their prime. <laughs> you need to qualify. Are you talking about prime for like childbearing, or are you talking about the prime for being president? Don't shoot the what the facts are. Google it. Everybody at home, when is a woman in her prime? It says 20s, 30s, and 40s. I'm just saying Nikki Haley should be careful about saying that politicians are not in their prime. And we. <laughs> Wow. Got off that set alive. <laughs> Honestly. That's one of, one of the most unhinged things I've seen on cable television. Okay, so kudos to the journalist at the end who asked the salient question. Brianna, I'm not sure I can continue this segment with it. You need to be put out to pasture. <laughs> my um, best, my um, best years are behind me. Bring her, bring her chair in here and wheel her out. <laughs> between reproductive viability and ability to do your job in Congress. I mean, right, that's the, so the, the additional hilarious thing is there, what he said was he was attempting to run cover for Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's outrageous. Of all the things you're going to attack Nikki Haley for, she's what, in her, uh, about 50 years old? I think we Googled it I mean, you just stop counting after 25. <laughs> Okay, so you're saying to me that they were, that it was making an argument about Nikki defending Haley older, was, older, older Nikki older Haley was saying maybe we need some guardrails for the Diane Feinsteins of the world staying in office forever. Right, and Don Lemon's response is, okay, but how old are your eggs? <laughs> Let me count <laughs> yeah. them. You're no spring chicken. <laughs> By the way, I mean, is he in his prime? Is Don Lemon in his prime? Well, he's not a woman. Oh, naturally, I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. That is, that is interesting, too, because he immediately went to, for women, it's different than men. Like, yeah. when, women yeah. spoil faster, <laughs> which is only relevant if we're talking about reproductive health. So I, don't, I really want to know why Don Lemon, of all people's mind, is going to Haley or Feinstein's or Biden's viability as breeders. The uh, discomfort on that set must have been gigantic. Uh, yeah, he has, he has a nerve to sit. I, I don't know how old the co-host well, is. At least the, the one who uh, spoke said that she was, was that in her Poppy 40s. Was Harlow? She said it was in her 40s. She, she said, oh, I'm in my 40s. I'm grandfathered in, because he said 20s, 30s, 40s is the prime. Yeah, I I, I, she could have gotten a lot nastier in that exchange. I, again, don't understand how they did it. <laughs> I don't understand how they let him off the set. I don't understand how they didn't skewer him for ages. He yeah, should be... And the host on the other side of him is Caitlin Collins, who there's been all this reporting that he's been yelling at her for daring to interrupt him. Um, he, that we showed that segment where she did a, a great interview with James Comer and, uh, right, as Poppy Harlow was saying that, oh, good, good work, and he was, like, cutting her off to say what an affront to democracy that we're even humoring these perspectives, but, you know, what does she know? She's just so old. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's we, insane to think that. The media criticism piece is often, we had these substantive analyses of, you know, how there's not ideological diversity on MSNBC and CNN, and that's a problem, mm -hmm. how they just have never Trump Republicans, they don't actually reflect the Republican Party, that they talk too much about Russiagate, and these are all legitimate criticisms that I think are the bedrock reasons why they're not performing very well in the ratings. And also there's this. <laughs> Whatever this is! <laughs> like, is this some 
weird byproduct of seeing something, seeing the world and politics through an exclusively identitarian lens that you're like, oh, we can't even imagine like a legitimate criticism of whether or not any given candidate at whatever age might not be cognitively fit to serve. We have to immediately go, well, it, well if, 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 age is a, if age is gonna be a liability to people, then I have to say, why, what can I do, what age quantity does, does Nikki Haley have that I can hit her on? Oh, the right. age of her reproductive system. Which is like no one. No, I've been very critical of Nikki Haley on the show, but no one is looking at going. Yeah, Nikki Haley, just too old, too withered, too. She's an attractive middle-aged woman. It, it's it's oh, yeah. silly. Yeah, middle-aged. I mean, she may or may not be, but Middle, a, you, gentleman does, a gentleman. A gentleman. Middle-aged. I'm not saying I want to date her. I'm okay. Saying a. She she is. She was born in 1972. Okay. So well, I was born in 1988, and I'm 34 years old. Oh, we're doing math live. So that makes her. Uh, She's I ran, 51. I ran, ran She's out of 51. Steam on that one. She's 51. Don Lemon is 56. Oh. So it sounds like they're gonna have to find a new host for this show. Maybe it explains his <laughs> uh, his lapses and uh, maybe he's suffering some cognitive decline. You know, it sets in it sets in soon, Brianna. You gotta check it out. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> all me. no. Well, we're you know we're we're past our prime, I think. Oh, we're, that's uh, that's for sure. Put us all out to pasture. They're gonna by get Don some. Lennon they gotta get some Gen Z TikTok teens. Actually, that's why we should go, going back to our pre uh, previous segment. We need to ban the kids from having access <laughs> to social media because they're gonna replace us at our jobs. <laughs> Well, that is another week down for us. We've had a good one, I think. It's, it's been the best. I mean, honestly, this last segment has made me happier and laugh harder than I had in weeks. I really almost feel bad about critiquing Don Lemon because of how much joy he's brought me this morning. I wish we could have, uh, I, I wanted to play it live, because you didn't know what was coming, no. and then we played it before we, were, we had the cameras rolling. Your, your cackle was... Delightful. I said some things I shouldn't have said. I'm glad the cameras were. We need live all the time, just so we don't miss the bloopers, man. You know, the yeah, I'll, bloopers. I'll get my Twitch stream going, and you can get the spicy, unfiltered content straight from a horse's mouth. The behind the scenes. All right. Well, tune in tomorrow, where we will be airing this week's highlights, and we will be back with you, of course, next week. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you should be sure to like, share, and subscribe. I mean, share content like this. There's no excuse. And also, you never have to miss any content. If you're on the go and want to listen, we're in podcast form. You can catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you know all the apps. You know where to get it. Um, and we will see you, of course, next week. Looking forward to it. Stay useful. Bye-bye. <laughs>